Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social, a strategic consulting and marketing firm for behavioral health. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Wolfington, the owner and founder of FinPay. They are a large financial services company that helps out with patient collections and also has a very strong data component, which, as you guys all know, I'm very obsessed with data. And he's going to share some really surprising information with you about the tremendous advantages of really focusing on quality uh, patient finances and patient responsibility collection. So before we jump into that, of course, want to hear from our wonderful sponsors. Track 9 Informatics is a data-driven approach to substance use disorder and mental health treatment. By assessing nine pathology and resilience factors that have been scientifically shown to be most critical to client success each week, Track 9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating which client symptoms, provides facility-specific clinical outcome analytics compared to national averages, and learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure, all of which help your program improve client outcomes, support payer negotiations, and reduce AMAs. To get a free consultation on how this data-driven approach can improve your program, call 833-998-7229 or email contact at track9.com. So like I mentioned, FinPay is a service that helps out with patient responsibility collections, whether that is deductibles, co-insurance, or you know, pay the patient sometimes happens where they send the check to the patients. And this is a very overlooked but extremely important area of behavioral health and healthcare in general. So on this interview, I'll, I'll share a personal experience that I'm having with our local hospital system and just some issues around this. So it's really timely and relevant to be having this conversation with Chris, but this is so needed and it's such an area of frustration and concern with patients. Again, we talk to a lot of patients when we work with our clients. We talk to a lot of moms and families as part of our demographic research. And this comes up constantly, the idea that I got a $10,000 bill in the mail that I didn't know was coming, or I was told I didn't know anything, and then suddenly I do. Not only that, it leads to very high AMA rates, so poor financial conversations up front tend to have a significant impact on the percentage of AMAs a particular facility will have, and it has a very direct impact on revenue. Um, But at the bottom line here, it's patient experience. And do you want to remove barriers to treatment? Well, a huge barrier to treatment is understanding the financial aspect of care. And so if you are not having upfront conversations with your patients and then finding ways to help them appropriately pay for the portion of their care that they owe, you're creating a barrier to treatment. And so we want to remove barriers. And that's part of the conversation we're having with Chris today. So let's jump in. Hey, Chris, really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the show. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and FinPay? Sure, Nick. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Um, I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts, so it's interesting to be on the other side of the, uh, of the table here. So I'm glad to be able to join you. Um, sure. Um, I'm the founder and chief revenue and strategy officer for FinPay. Uh, FinPay, I guess you could say I'm a serial entrepreneur. It's my uh, seventh 
company I've started. Uh, two have gone on to be public companies um, in a variety of different areas of consumer payments, but all of them to do with, with finance, specifically consumer finance. Um, and so, you know, pivoting into the healthcare industry, which is in dire need for some help around patient payments, was uh, sort of a natural with my 30 years of consumer payments experience. And the other companies that you ran were also, like you said, in the financial area. And so what you're running now with Behavior Health is pretty similar or has a lot of analogous uh, activity. Is that right? Yeah. So um, it's always been around consumer payments. One of the things that I've made myself a student of is understanding how consumers think and what some of the minimum requirements are for them to you know, meet their financial obligations and how to simplify payments and how to create an environment that is consumer-friendly, not only in the ease of making the payment, but making sure that consumers understand what it is you're asking them to pay. Obviously, this is a big deficiency in healthcare. Um, The financial literacy for most consumers in healthcare is is little or none at all, Uh, and that's one of the biggest reasons why they don't pay their medical bills, because they don't understand what their provider is asking them to pay. Yeah, it is definitely a big issue. This is one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, because this is a highly relevant topic around patient responsibility and looking at things, especially as deductibles have climbed significantly, right? Patient responsibility is accounting for a lot more of the revenue that comes into providers. You know, I've actually just been in and out of the hospital with some minor scans and stuff like that. And I just had a conversation with the regional CEO of one of our hospital systems here, because I know him pretty well. And I was telling him, I'm going through this system and I understand a lot of this stuff. You know, I I know the ins and outs of insurance. I know how a lot of it works and I'm still getting lost in the system and I'm getting confused by what's going on. And you have, you know, people contacting me that are scheduling things before they're running pre-offs and then the pre-offs aren't getting done. And then the, you know, insurance companies blaming the hospital, the hospital's blaming the insurance company. I'm like, this stuff shouldn't be happening, (laughs) but it still is. And it's the same in healthcare as it is in behavioral health. So really excited to kind of have you talk about this. Is it, is that what inspired you to get into the behavioral health space or what really brought you to this field originally? So it started like like I, here's what I find. I find most people that are in behavioral health came in through a side door, like they didn't come out of their education thinking that they want to be in the behavioral health space. There's usually a personal journey or a personal experience um, that led to that. And I've had a couple of those, both personally and as a parent, uh, as a brother, as a son. Um, with in, in my family as well, there's a, a history of uh, mental illness in certain members of the family. And so I've seen, not only have I seen the importance of getting good medical, uh, mental health, good mental health benefits and care, I've also been personally uh, experienced where the lack of parity in healthcare benefits, behavioral health as opposed to acute care, really puts an extra strain on the system. And I say the system specifically because it strains the provider, it strains the patient. Um, The insurance companies, uh, just over time, they've been allowed to have really big disparity between what they pay for acute care services versus behavioral mental health services. And when you add on the stigma that's typically um, associated with behavioral health, you know, you're just making a bad problem worse. Yeah. And yeah. And so I think that's, you know, 
how I kind of found my way here, right? Through a series of life experiences that really didn't go that well. And I realized there's a better, smarter way to do it and a more transparent way that's patient friendly. And that's what we've, that's what we've done. Perfect. So we were talking before the call here about what you call net patient revenue. And I think this is something really important to just kind of dive into right at the beginning, but providers are just notorious for doing a poor job of collecting patient responsibility, you know, and as I just mentioned, I I had the same experience with the hospital system. The person scheduling it and doing the procedures had no idea about payments or insurance authorization. They didn't even discuss it. I had to bring it up with them. And then they just kind of shrug their shoulders. I don't know. And that definitely happens within a lot of addiction treatment providers. We see it all the time with clients. So this is something you're dealing with directly. Why is there such a poor job done around this? And then how does this apply to kind of net patient revenue and why is that important? So it's a, because it's a three headed monster. Most people pay attention to just the money factor, right? So let's first talk about why historically the part of your question about why the uh, provider has been notoriously bad at collecting patient financial responsibility. Well, I'll tell you one way to check it. Anybody listening to this call, um, ask yourself, do I have, a manager of patient financial management? Do I have a director of patient financial management? Is there a vice president of patient financial management? My guess is the answer is no, and that it's never been treated as a separate discipline. And as a result, uh, it always gets put under revenue cycle. And we all know revenue cycle's primary job is managing the reimbursement from the insurance companies. And so that's part of the problem that there is no subject matter expert internally because they usually throw it to the revenue cycle manager or the VP of finance, whose primary job is the insurance. The second issue that comes about that makes basic infrastructure, right, of, of these provider back offices not consistent with doing this well is they've always are used to chasing money. Everybody has some type of accounts receivable or collection system or process in place. But because it's on the back end, it's all about chasing money. Uh, With my 30 years in consumer payments, I can tell you, if your model is chasing money, you've already lost. You just don't know it yet. And so what ends up happening, and then the last thing that contributes to the, the cause, Nick, is 10 years ago, Nobody cared about patient financial responsibility. The insurance company paid 90% of the bill, 99% of the bill if you go back 15 years. Today, across the whole healthcare spectrum, the patient owes between 13 and 15% of the gross charges. Now, in behavioral health, it's actually closer to 20% due to the lack of parity of benefits. Last year, there were $460 billion in deductibles, co-pays, co-insurance, self-pay, all out-of-pocket costs for the consumer. And only 19% of that was ever paid. In behavioral health, specifically, only about 13% of that ever gets paid. Mm. So over the last five to 10 years, Nick, as the patient, there's been a cost shift, right, from the uh, insurance company to the consumer. Every year, as high deductible health plans become more normal, that the providers have been caught flat-footed. They still, and this is what makes it more difficult for them. If you think about it, even though as big as the patient money has become, it's still only 20%, right? 
So if you are a revenue cycle manager and every day you go to work and you have a decision to make, am I going to spend my time on insurance reimbursements or patient financial responsibility? Well, what are you going to choose? Sure. So, so what ends up happening is patient financial management as a discipline never becomes prioritized. No one ever pays attention to it. And that is why not only is it notoriously uh, bad at collecting this money, there's no subject matter expert internally to guide them on what are best practices and what's the best way to start managing this better, to your point, so you can at least start to increase net patient revenue. And I define that, Nick. A lot of people don't define it the same, so I'll take a second. Net patient revenue or average net patient revenue is insurance money actually paid plus patient money that was actually paid, that sum of those two numbers, and then measuring that against your admissions. And so you always know is they should have been flow together, right? And being able to follow net patient revenue as a KPI uh, is critical because it's not about more patients. It's more about more quality patients where you can get better access and a higher level of care to so uh, your outcomes are better, both clinically and financially. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, when we first started off in this space a number of years ago, we would sometimes have facilities come to us and they'd say, you know, that that facility across the street is they're full. They, they just always seem to be doing great. You know, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder how they're doing that. <laughs> but eventually what happened is we got more involved in the space and we got a lot more familiar with it and then became, you know, the level of expertise that we have now. We realized very quickly that they actually weren't collecting revenue for a large majority of those patients. We've actually gone into facilities and very large facilities that are very well known. And there's one where they were actually collecting 6% of patients in terms of what they were getting paid. So 94% of all patients coming into the facility were they were not getting reimbursed for, either because they weren't appropriate, because insurance had not been handled appropriately, because there was no patient responsibility collection, because they were just scholarshiping a lot of people. Like there's a lot of different reasons for it. So as I always say, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in this field. So I'm really glad that you bring up this topic because census doesn't mean a whole lot if there's not reimbursement behind it. Otherwise, you just have a whole lot of operating costs and, and nothing to show for it, you know, and you're going to hurt yourself more than help yourself. Yeah, well, there's two, there's two components to that. First is, and I think you have experience in this market, so you know this. For a long time, there's been this myth that having the financial conversation is the boogeyman. And the boogeyman is out to ruin or derail stall, or cancel an admission. I remember when I grew up, Nick, I was convinced the boogeyman lived in my closet till my mom got me out of bed one night, walked me in there and showed me there's no boogeyman. And what we're trying to show the, the, the community is that the financial conversation prior to admission, not only is it not the boogeyman, the trust and rapport that you build with the patient as a result of being so transparent and upfront, it actually increases conversions in the call center. It drives census. It opens up new markets. So, you know, facilities are looking to expand their addressable market through self-pays and uh, through different specialized programs can do so without taking risk. Um, I'll give you a great example. We have a customer, uh, Recovery Centers of America, 
who, when they started, their CFO and their chief administrative officer, um, uh, Kevin McClure and Deanna Talese, respectively, I'll give them a shout-out because they deserve it. They're like, okay, we want to provide, our goal is to provide care to a million patients or more that need it and normally wouldn't get access to it. And they asked us for our help. And they said, we care mostly about the patient's experience, not about the money. So focus on the experience. And what, what, what turned out to be really interesting about this, when you made the, the focus, the patient's financial experience, the number one priority, so being transparent, being upfront, being compliant, um, we got more money paid and patients send us love letters. I call them love letters, Nick. So when's the last time you wrote a big check to somebody you're buying a product or service from and you thought it was appropriate to write them a thank you note? <laughs> yeah, not too often. Uh, our clients get five to 15 love letters a month about their financial experience, and they pay about 60% of what they owe up front before they even walk in the door. And the big difference is, Nick, and I know this sounds like I'm playing on words, but I'm not. We do not collect from patients. We educate patients so they feel comfortable in paying. And I hope the distinction is coming through, right? When you collect from someone, you're chasing them to get them to pay. When you educate someone so they're comfortable to voluntarily make a payment, it's a different mindset. And when you consider the already turbulent and fearful and anxiety-ridden state of mind that most patients and their families in are at the time of a behavioral health admission, if you can alleviate some of that just by being more upfront and more transparent about cost and helping them break that affordability barrier, they will love you for it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, I mean, we see it all the time. So you know, I'm obviously involved in a number of ethics groups. I'm involved in parents groups. You know, we talk to a lot of parents just from a marketing perspective to under, better understand where they're coming from. And there's so much anger uh, against treatment providers when they get like a balance bill in the mail, you know, or they get an unexpected $8,000 charge and they don't know why it's coming. They don't know where it came from, or maybe they were directly lied to. Right. And someone told them that they wouldn't be receiving a bill and then they did. And so people get extremely frustrated with that. And what also happens is it's not just a negative reaction about someone that went to your facility. Right. They often go and then leave bad reviews online and as I've talked about on this podcast a number of times, you will see your cost per call and your cost per admission climb by as much as 30% higher than everyone else in your market if you have poor online review scores. So this is not just, okay, that patient's not here anymore and you know it's a problem, but we're past it. No, this is actually going to affect your business for a very long time. Um, unless you solve the problem. And I even think about it. Yeah, just, and, and, you know, and on that note, that's a really interesting point. I'd like to just clarify something on it. So that is why we track the patient satisfaction score just on the financial experience, which currently across all of our customers, we don't have a single customer that has a score below 98%. The industry's average is less than 5% satisfaction on the financial experience. So as I said before, not only... If you get better scores or your Google reviews better and therefore your cost of customer acquisition goes down, 
let's face it, the lowest cost and most effective marketing strategy is a happy alumni. That's right. And the problem with the current models that I mentioned earlier about accounts receivable and collections, they're all on the back end. So if my strategy to get paid by the patient has anything to do with my billing department, well, I've just then made sure that 100% of my patients' last experience with me is financial, and that's how they're going to judge me. One of the reasons why we do everything on the front end, Nick, is, is we want every patient's last experience to be a clinical experience, and that's the thing that they're reviewing on Google or any other type of Yelp or type of review platform like that. And if and, and the importance of that is this because... And then so when you give them that patient experience-focused approach, they're saying the greatest things about you and your, and your facility and your team and the clinical care they receive. And then that's what patients, future patients, respond to. I love that. And you know, so I've seen your, your software, right? And as a data nut, you guys have fantastic data. You have fantastic dashboards, you know, real time, which is just invaluable. And so you mentioned that data point there about, you know, having a 90% plus satisfaction core coming from patients. You know, what else have you seen in the data in terms of the amount of revenue collected, the number of patients retained, AMAs, because even that whole relationship before they come in or on payment affects AMAs. People don't realize that, but it does. What data have you seen as you started to work with clients and implement your particular services? So the first thing we've learned is to speak to the, the last point about AMAs. It's, it's a known fact that one of the largest causes of, a, of AMAs is you give a patient an excuse to leave by giving them misinformation, whether it's on purpose or by accident, around cost. And then they show up at the facility and someone tries to you know, hit them up for whatever amount of money and then they say, I'm out of here. You guys weren't honest with me. And, and we all know that it's hard enough to get an admission and to get a patient to want to seek treatment and then to, you know, to just aggravate them, you know, with misinformation is, and our data shows that by, you know, handling it up front, being more transparent, you don't reduce those. You literally eliminate them in their entirety. The other thing we track that's really important is, you know, well, I should probably say where we're, where the starting point is. Most facilities, I'll, let me take a, I'm going to make a bold statement. Every facility I've ever spoken to, the only data they have with respect to patient financial management is a number of accounts receivable, but most of the time the insurance money is included in that number. They'll say how many accounts are outstanding in that receivables bucket and maybe how many days the average outstanding account is. Um, that is not actionable intelligence. I can't do anything with that to solve my problem. I don't even know where my problem is with just those three data points. So at FinPay, it wasn't just enough to give the patient a great experience and, and to get the money paid. It was important to be able to uh, provide actionable intelligence to our customers so that they could continuously improve the model to continue to improve the patient's experience and the dollars recovered. So what do I mean by that? So not only can our system with dashboards tell you, you know, how much dollars was processed through patient financial responsibility, but it can segment it by risk class. So we use in our software a risk stratification engine that allows us to target and segment patients by their situation or risk. 
for example, an out-of-network patient, an in-network patient with a high out-of-pocket cost, um, self-pays, patients with prior balances, uh, patients that the benefits are paid directly to the patient. Some people call that patient paid by payer or paid to patient. There's a lot of different names for it. These are not credit risks. These are situational risks. So not only do we have the ability to target and segment your patients so we can hyper-personalize their experience based on that risk category, we actually can report in our dashboards by those risk segments. So you always know what's working and what's not working down granularly down to each risk class. Not only that, it doesn't make a lot of sense to offer payment programs to patients if you can't monitor and measure which ones the patients like and how are they performing. So I'll give you a great example. We had um, we had a client who was allowing some patients to go out, you know, as far as 24 months on the payment plan. So the choices were 3, 6, 9, 12, 18, and 24. Uh, for whatever reason, the 18-month plan was the most underperforming plan that there was. And because our dashboards identified that, we ended up just tweaking the rules for anyone that wanted that plan where they had to put a little bit more down money. And over the course of about two months, it fixed the performance because it's a known fact that consumer payments, the more down money, the more likely the person is to fulfill their obligation. And, you know, without that sort of granular dashboarding reporting capabilities, they never would have known that. And so being able to see and have various levels of visibility into what's making your patient financial management strategy either successful or unsuccessful, I mean, let's be frank, you can't even start until you can start getting that visibility so you know what's working and what's not. Yeah. 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 And that's what was really impressive to me about the dashboard and the, the risk stratification and the different, you know, granular analyses that you guys are able to provide to your clients. So one of the questions I had is something that you do really well is you do a huge education component, right? When you're talking to the patients of your clients. And I thought this was interesting. It's not just about, you know, telling them what's going on and setting up a payment plan and kind of this perfunctory functionality, right? But you have spoken to me previously a couple of times about the importance of providing educational value to the different, you know, people coming in and talking to your team. Can, can you walk us through why that's so important? So I'll, I'll, I'll do it with a question. And it's one of the first questions I ask every CEO of every behavioral health facility that I talk to. I ask them and I'll ask you, Nick, when was the last time you wrote a four-figure check for a product or a service that you had no idea what you were buying? Yeah, never. <laughs> never. And by the way, it's funny. As fast as you said never, that's how fast every CEO says never. <laughs> so I usually lean up, I look at him dead in the eye, and I say, why do you expect your patients to do anything differently? Just because you send someone a statement in the mail, and it might have some line items on there that you understand, they don't understand it. And it's a known fact that the financial literacy rate around healthcare costs, even for well-educated consumers, is very low. So it doesn't matter. And that's why the top five things people try before they talk to me, Nick, they try to expand their collection efforts or they change collection agencies. And I always tell them, if it's, a, if it's this is not a collection problem. So 
doing those things isn't going to solve it. The next thing people try to do, they try to throw bodies at it. They expand their admissions team. And think about it. Most admissions staff make 16 to $20 an hour. They're already burdened having to be the subject matter expert on clinical intakes, right? There's suitability assessments, understanding the medication policies, the amenities of all the facilities. And now all of a sudden they're also supposed to be good about having an, you know, an honest and transparent conversation about money. I think it's an unreasonable expectation, but throwing bodies at it doesn't work. Standalone financial products don't work. Self-service technology doesn't work. So if everybody's tried all these five things, why do they keep trying them? Why don't they work? Because of the first question I asked you, Nick. If somebody doesn't understand what it is they're being asked to pay, doesn't matter how hard you collect from them, how many bodies you throw at it, how much technology you use, right? It's not going to work. So at the core of any solution to this problem in healthcare, education has to be at the foundation. And secondly, is affordability. So the solutions, and the reason education is important is think about yourself, Nick, and your own, you mentioned earlier you had a healthcare experience. All this paperwork we know that shows up at the patient's mailbox. We know it confuses them. So why wouldn't you have an educational part of the conversation take 60 seconds and explain what the billing and claims process is and manage the patient's expectation? If there's a way for the patient to save money through HSAs or FSAs or other savings opportunities, why not take 30 seconds and explain it to them up front? If you have a financial clearance policy, why not share it with the patient? Take 20 seconds to do that. If the patient has a health plan, which most of them do, they don't. And remember, nobody was paying attention during open enrollment on how their plan works because most people just shop premium. So when they use their insurance and they're confronted with these big bills, somebody just needs to take 60 to 90 seconds to explain how it works. And so this education contributes to building the trust and a bond between the patient and the facility. So they know when they go into treatment, they already have the financial uh obligations taken care of through our FinPay platform, and they walk in with only one concern, that's getting well. And all the normal fears, anxieties, and frustrations around money are in the rearview mirror. That's why the clinical outcomes are better. That's why the patient satisfaction scores are higher. And that's why the, uh, literally, and this is going to sound like an exaggeration, Nick, I don't think I have a single client where we didn't improve uh, patient payments by more than 500%. Definitely over 450%. Uh, I think the most recent one is 500%. Yeah, no, I, di- I just want to emphasize that because that's really important. So, you know, you've talked about increasing the patient responsibility collection rate. And, you know, I can tell you just from our own data that it's typically very poor. If a facility is collecting 10%, that's actually really good a lot of the time in this space, especially for addiction treatment. So what's the average amount that you guys are collecting for your clients in terms of patient responsibility again? So we measure it pre-care, like pre-admission, because we think it's important because it's, you know cash flow is important. So the two numbers we measure, three numbers we measure are what's the percentage of patient financial responsibility we get paid prior to admission, what's the overall percentage we get, and what's the patient satisfaction score. Because in our business model, if you get money 
but your satisfaction scores go down, that, that's not good. Both have to be maintained. So in 2020, 63.1% of all the money, deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance was in our client's bank account for any patient they sent us before they were admitted. About 84.5% overall was paid, like through the whole cycle. And our average patient satisfaction score just for the financial experience was 98.1%. It's amazing. We're, cur- we're currently in about 45 facilities. Um, you know, we're growing at, at a rate of 100% or more a year in revenue. Um, and our list of customers is getting bigger every year. So we, we're very blessed. Yeah. I just love that you put those two together because that's always the concern is that people are going to somehow scare away patients. So they're going to collect less money or that they're going to upset them. Right. And like I said, 10% is really normal. So I bet you a lot of listeners to this podcast probably when we know what percent of patient responsibility they collect. So you are collecting six to eight times more patient responsibility than the average facility across the country. And then top of that, You've got a 90% plus satisfaction rate. 98, 98.1. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I, my, my thing I'm most, the thing I'm most proud of, Nick, I, we got a, um, I told you we get these love letters, I call them, about five to 15 per month per client. And one came in last month and it said, it t- and I wish it was in front of me because I'd like to quote it, but the, to paraphrase it, it was, I just wanted to thank you and God bless you for everything you do. This was a very turbulent point in my life, and I don't know what I would have been able to do without your team. That was the letter. And that wasn't about clinical. That was about their financial experience with us. It shows you how starving the patient is for someone to hold their hand through the complexities and the, and the fears around financial responsibility for healthcare. I think you guys really have uh, an important service here, right? Something that has been missing for a long time. Yeah, and just kind of picking back and off my recent healthcare story here. But you know, I got a bill for like five thousand dollars. I know a couple days ago that no one had talked about, right? I had talked to, again, the hospital, I talked to the insurance company and they're like, yes, it's pre-authorized, you're fine. This is a covered scan, right? And then I get a $5,000 bill in the mail. Well, I'm pretty pissed off. I mean, you think I'm gonna pay that bill? No way in hell. I'm gonna call them, you know, I'm gonna talk to them about what they did wrong, right? And then how they need to fix this because I'm not paying it because they told me it was covered, right? And so the hospital's not gonna get paid on it. On top of that, you know, for my next scan, I just switched it up and I'm going to a different hospital. So not only are they not getting paid on the original scan, but now they're losing all their revenue for additional scans. And, And of course this happens within the healthcare space too. Well, not only that, Nick, if, if you if you take your experience and you apply it to behavioral health, where readmissions are, you know, a big part of of you know the way the industry works, would would you want a bad financial financial experience to get in the way of your patient deciding to come back to you versus going somewhere else? Exactly. And under the current laws, let's talk about compliance for a second, right? Now that ECRA is starting to be enforced, those two guys in California that got the jail terms for uh, waiving and reducing the out-of-pocket costs, 
it's no longer just a, you know, uh, for you know CMS related facilities. Now, commercially insured patients, it's a criminal act under ECRA uh, to waive or reduce uh, out-of-pocket costs as inducement. And then you have consumer protection laws that need to be adhered to. So, you know, this whole notion that, you know, you, you ignore this topic. And then what happens is some people, they want to check the box. So um, for those that are aware of this, they have to do three regular and customary collection efforts. But think about what that means, Nick. If I have to do three regular collection efforts, I have a patient. And let's say I have a, you know, a readmission rate, you know, that, that maybe is 5, 10, 15%. Well, if I'm sending collection letters to my patients, because the law requires me to, um, what are the chances that patient's coming back to me? Yeah. Now, if I handle the financial conversation up front and all those efforts are date and time stamps, so you meet those compliance obligations. And now the client has a great clinical experience with you. And there are no collection letters. And God forbid they relapse or need, there's a readmission. Why wouldn't they come back to you? It's what they know. So it always baffled me, Nick, why an industry that is so dependent on clinical outcomes and the importance of, you know, you know, limiting you know, trying to limit relapses, but when it happens, you know, to be able to continue care for that patient would allow the last experience to be financial. Yeah, we talk so much about removing barriers and finances is a yep. huge barrier. And, you know, a lot of providers are unfortunately adding a barrier. In this case, maybe it's on the readmission end. Maybe it is on the AMA end. Just to reemphasize that point that you made, but a large result of AMAs are from poor information on the front end or surprise bills or discussions about finance that no one talked to them about. So if you want to remove barriers to treatment, one way to do that is to have a very upfront and honest discussion with your patients. And as you've seen, you know, consistently across 45 facilities and millions of dollars, it actually helps the patients and helps the provider at the same time. Here's another one that's interesting, Nick, I never understood. Having a good, transparent, and upfront financial conversation starts with getting the estimate right. So we ended up in the beginning when we started FinPay, we were doing the financial conversations and our technology was being used for automating payments and, and, and doing the risk stratification. We realized that the industry didn't have a reliable mechanism for creating the estimate. Now, there are a lot of companies out there that will verify benefits for a patient. But very little run estimates and give risk scoring so the head of admissions can have visibility into risk and managing risk before you say yes to an admission. And so FinPay built a, uh, an estimator tool that not only will translate the patient's benefits into a patient financial responsibility that's accurate, and ours is within a 5% margin of error, It'll also give you risk scores, like what's the profitability going to be on this admission? How many days do I have to wait till the first insurance check comes in, right? That's an AMA risk, right? What's the patient financial responsibility concentration risk? In other words, of all my gross charges, you know, how much, what percent is the patient owing, right? And also like referral risk. 
Um, ECRA says that you can't pay for referrals of patients, but that hasn't stopped referral sources from wanting special favors for their patients. But how do we know those referred patients, right, are, you know, economically viable for the host provider? Because you can have a great mission as a, as a behavioral health facility, but if you don't have any, I, I heard a client of mine say once that I, and I, I totally appreciate it. No money, no mission. You know, I can have a really great mission to help as many people as I want, but I'm not going to get quality caregivers. I'm not going to have quality facilities if I don't have the money to sustain myself to, to keep that quality at a high level. And therefore, I need to get paid by the patient or their families. And so this is why having an estimator tool that helps me manage risk better before I approve an admission makes my, my operation more sustainable and creates yeah. longevity. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we work with nonprofits, we work with for-profits, and the nonprofits in particular tend to struggle a little bit more with some of those concepts, you know, with no money, no mission. But when we work with them, we show them, hey, look, you guys are really focused on all this quality care and, and providing all these extra services, you know, that other providers don't offer. You need to get, figure out a way to get paid for this so that you can continue to do more work and provide more support. You know, I mean, we, we've had providers bringing in extra five million a year just by, you know, kind of coming in and figuring out how to get paid on things and cutting unnecessary costs. And suddenly they're like, oh, my God, we have all this money to do these additional clinical services that we wanted to and just couldn't afford before. So you're exactly right. I mean, you really have to look at revenue as not, not just a driver of um, revenue itself, but how does it expand services? And then how do you expand care, right? If you have a really great program, well, you want to serve more patients. And so if you're going to serve more patients, you got to get bigger and that costs money. And so having that revenue end is just super important. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a great example of that we have a, a nonprofit provider, customer of ours, that when they hired us, they were literally on the last, well, just about to close their doors. And according to their VP of business operations, we brought in more money in the first quarter we were there than they had in the prior five years combined. <laughs> wow. And, and part of their ability to keep the doors open long enough so they could obviously sell it to, to somebody with deeper pockets to sustain the mission, um, they gave us a lot of credit for you know, buying them the time to do that. Sure, sure. Well, Chris, I really appreciate all the time and the information. Like I said, you know, I think it's a really valuable product. I love hearing the data around the benefit it's brought to patients and how important this is. So I really hope a lot of listeners are starting to understand this because I feel I feel it's a huge gap that the space can make a lot of improvement on. Do you have any final thoughts or anything else you wanted to share uh, on this topic? Yeah, um, just that if, uh, you know, the first step, is being open to change and being open to look, you know, having a new, what I call having a new playbook, right? And recognizing that through a better financial experience, everything in your business gets better. You know, and at FinPay, that's our mission. We're a group of people that are committed to breaking the affordability barrier to and getting more people access to treatment. And, you know, we're doing just that. And I would just tell you know, just make sure, I, again, as I said, education and affordability needs to be at the core or you're just going to keep, you know, throwing money at things that aren't going to work. Agreed. So, Chris, if people want to reach out to you or connect with FinPay, what's the best way to do that? 
Oh, great. Well, our website is uh, www.finpay.net. That's F-I-N-P-A-Y.net. My email address is cw at finpay.net. And uh, I'll give out my direct line. If they're your listeners, they can call me at 610-909-7000. Well, thanks so much for your time today. Everyone, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski. Appreciate you joining us, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Nick.